Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Nelson with Kappa Greater Olean. Happy President's Day week. I am sitting here with Dr. Philip Payne at St. Bonaventure University. Dr. Payne is the History Department Chair and also the author of Dead Black, The Public <laughs> Memory of Warren G. Harding's Scandalous Legacy. Now, um, in addition to the book, you are also the historic site manager at Harding's Home and Museum in Marion, Ohio. What is it to be, what's to be remembered of Harding's presidency? All right, so if you think about Warren G. Harding, um, who was president right after World War One, so World War One ended, uh, Wilson, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was president during the war, had a stroke in the office, mm-hmm. and the presidency has kind of collapsed because there's not a plan for, the 25th Amendment doesn't exist, right? So there's no plan for what happens with the president incapacitated. So the thing with Harding is he's elected in 1920. It's a pivotal election, and we can go into more of that later. Um, and he uh, has this enormously popular presidency. However, he dies in office in August 1923. The nation mourns. There's, there's, there's this vast sort of uh, public period of mourning. However, about the time Harding dies, and then in the subsequent years, really for the next decade, there's a series of, of revelations and scandals about Harding that ruins his reputation. And he goes from being having died a beloved president to being regularly regarded as the worst president, often ranked bottom, left the bottom worst president uh, in U.S. history, um, to the point where they, when they build the Harding Memorial, um, they complete it. The uh, presidents, the sitting presidents, refused to attend a memorial dedication. Okay. Uh, and only the only way they can make it happen is uh, Herbert Hoover finally agrees to do it when it's very clear that he's not going to get reelected president. And it's a kind of very last thing, one of the last things he does as president. And remarkably, he shows up and dedicates the memorial. He stands on it. He's in Marion, Ohio, the President Harding's hometown. He's dedicating his memorial. Harding's been dead for almost a decade. And he basically says that Harding was a good man who was betrayed by his friends, that he was naive. And he's looking at Harding's friends when he says that. And it's just remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So um, as the title of your book suggests, Harding could be um, ranked dead last as far as presidents go. And I'm wondering, what do you think of presidential rankings and how would you even go about doing something like that? So, yeah, so presidential rankings, the way they work, so, okay, start at the beginning. The first presidential ranking began with Arthur Schlesinger Sr. in, uh, I think, the late 1940s. And what he basically did is he wrote some of his friends, and he was, a, he was a historian at Harvard. He just wrote some of his fellow historians that said, how would you rank the president? And then he published an article in Time magazine. And it was kind of a one-off sort of thing, but it turned out to be hugely popular. So he starts repeating that process. Uh, then he's going to die, and then his son, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who also becomes a historian, takes it up, and he starts doing it. So there's presidential rankings go on. And because they're so popular over the years, they're just 
I don't know how many of there are now. There's just a lot. There's uh, at least um, there's five or six, and people have now kind of made a study of this. The thing about presidential rankings, um, the criticisms of them are: is one, the first one was Schlesinger, because there's nothing scientific about it at all. It's, there's no pretense. It's just I have some friends that I do in schools. They're also historians. Let's see what they say, right? Um, so it tends, to, it tends to be a certain bias built into that. And one of the criticisms of rankings are they, they tend to be uh, rankings done by liberals, right, uh, or by people in the academy or by people who are Ivy League institutions. Now that's sort of uh, – so over the years you've seen conservative rankings, you've seen uh, different groups. Some people have applied statistical modeling to it. There's a whole bunch of ways people get at it. But some of the problems with it is I kind of think a lot of times it can be almost a fundamentally silly thing is, one, how do you, like, rank? Like, okay, this guy's 10 and this one's 9. Yeah. Right? Because it's a mismatch. And, like, what if they're foreign policy, but they're not so good at domestic policy? Or what if they're dealing with a domestic, domestic crisis and they ignore foreign policy, right? What if they have a crisis that they can rise to the occasion to, what if they're a great president and they just preside over peace and prosperity? Do they get penalized for having peace and prosperity? Yeah. Right? So there's a whole sort of – and then you have to ask yourself, like, well, the expectations of a modern president are wildly different than, say, a president before Franklin Roosevelt. Right. Well, and they keep yeah. changing. Like, for example, it used to be a president as, as late as Eisenhower if there was a natural disaster, the president didn't do anything. It wasn't expected. Like, if there was a hurricane or I don't know, anything like that, the president was not expected to issue statements. The president was not expected to oversee disaster relief. He just went about his business, like, right? And now, now it's considered part of the president's job. So how do you compare, you know, how do you compare, like, say, a 21st century with a 19th century president? when job expectations are just so radically different. Dorian, how do you determine what a president's leg legacy is? Or, like, with, his, with the case of Harding, he kind of, like, was one way in his life, but then his legacy had to be something different. So legacies are determined a couple ways. Um, and none of this is, like, I'm giving you, I'm making this sound like it's a lot more clear-cut than it is. Yeah. Like, like, like it's not actually this clear-cut. It's a lot murkier. But basically... Uh, a couple of things come into play. Um, and at, at a basic level, one of them is the legacy of, of, of the interaction between active, people doing research on the president and then people doing, um, so there's, there's the research that gets done on the president. And then there's what's going on that generates interest in that president, right? Um, so partly a legacy, and, and I have to say, and, uh, let me start this. And also with modern presidents, they have presidential museums and libraries, and those are basically legacy machines. Yeah. Their job is to cultivate the legacy of that president, right? So you have to keep that in mind. So since FDR forward, they all have presidential libraries that take care of the legacy of the president. But anyway, so one of them is historians are doing research. If a president doesn't leave papers, say like Calvin Coolidge, who didn't leave very many papers, it makes it hard to do research. Mm -hmm. And the president's not really debated. And therefore, they sort of fall into obscurity. 
The other thing in terms of the public memory is, so that, that's on the academic side. On the public side, does the president resonate? Is there a morality tell there? Is there something the public wants to learn from it, right? Um, and that's essentially what happened to Harding. But Harding became this sort of tabloid figure, like because he, he the scandals included uh, numerous mistresses, stories of him having children out of wedlock, uh, drinking during prohibition, and so that would resonate. And basically, every time a, a president would have a personal scandal, Harding would eventually inevitably come up. So, for example, when Bill Clinton's having the Monica Lewinsky scandal, all right? Um, so when he has his scandal over his uh, involvement with Monica Lewinsky, Harding comparisons were all over the place because Harding had become that touchstone, that morality tale around personal conduct in the White House, right? Yeah. So, so part of it's just, this, as citizens, the stories we tell about presidents, and then that interacts with the academic research that gets done. And the, where the academic research comes into it is kind of, is there something going on now that reignites interest in the president? So, for example, when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of people look back at Harry Truman, who had created a lot of the apparatus that fought the Cold War. So Truman oversaw the creation of the National Security Administration, CIA, the Air Force, the Department of Defense, right? And Truman was actually very unpopular when he left office. But then, you know, several decades later, he looked back and said, look, Truman knew what he was doing. He created containment policy, and all these decades later, it worked. So sometimes you have that. Right. So um, you talked a little bit about how the presidency has kind of changed. And, like, now, for example, they deal with natural disasters, and they didn't mm-hmm. at one time. Um, like, are there other ways that the presidency has changed, or do you think that in most ways it's, like, kind of been preserved? A little bit of both. Um, if you read the Constitution, what it says about the presidency is actually very vague. Like, it's not – we did that in class this semester. We started the class on the presidency by reading the Constitution on the presidency, and it doesn't say a whole lot. And a lot of – the norms of the presidency were actually set by George Washington. And they kind of expected that. When he wrote the president, when he wrote the Constitution, a working assumption was that George Washington would become president. Um, and, and some of those norms, a lot of those norms have stayed. But what's happened really since Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal is that there's just more expectation that we look to the president as being the center of the government and really the, 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 the key person in the government. And so more powers gravitated to the presidency and the president's become much more of, a, of an overall symbolic leader and expectations of president. Um, like it used to be the president really wasn't held accountable for the state of the economy. Um, so there's, and the other thing that's driven this change in the presidency is the United States being a global power, a military power, because the military needs a more centralized command structure, and Congress is often reluctant to intervene with the president when it comes to military prerogative. Right. 
So, and well, okay, this is kind of a follow-up question, but um, we had talked the other day about how there may, might be some parallels between Warren G. Harding's presidency and maybe like current presidency or similarities. So this, yeah, this is going to be interesting. So when we're thinking about Harding and President Trump, we want to think about a couple of things. One is, I, I think there's a lot of similarities between the 1920s and today. Right, mm-hmm. that, especially if you think about the 20s, not what's going on in the 20s. Um, there's a lot of tension in the United States in the 1920s. Uh, there's a lot of tension over immigration. A lot of Americans, because uh, the United States, by the time we get to the 20s, has had multiple decades of, of a lot of immigration, and there's, there's sort of a backlash growing. And you can see that in groups like the Klux Klan. Uh, in the 20s, Americans are moving to cities. And there's a youth culture developing, and you see a lot of tension between urban and rural areas as they have very different cultures. Um, and you see that manifest in like prohibition, which is very popular in rural areas, but very unpopular in urban areas. You see this in the Scopes Monkey trial over evolution. So there, there is a cultural war element to it. But then with Harding, and there's also a sexual revolution in the 20s, where we're thinking about the roles of men and women are changing. And again, that creates cultural tension. What Harding does in the 20s, and this is where I think you see in Trump echoes of this, is Harding in the 1920s campaign, and it's interesting because 1920 is the first national election that women can vote in. The 18th Amendment has been ratified. And they're trying to figure out how to court women. Like, like, like all the political bosses literally don't know how women are going to vote. They're like, well, what will, how will women vote, right? Um, and so one of the things that Harding does is he, 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 his campaign slogan is return to normalcy in America first. And he's, he's in this time of economic turmoil and we've just, we're, industrialization has reached its peak. Urbanization, the United States has become an urban nation. And we've just finished World War One. There's been this sort of exhaustion from the war. He's like, he kind of presents this picket fence version of America. We're going back to the 1890s. Now, the reality is the 1890s were terrible. The major economic depression, there were strikes. The 1890s were not. But by the 20s, we're always starting, people are always start thinking in the 90s as the gay 90s. They, they recreated this romantic version of the past that doesn't really exist. And, and Harding taps into that. And he says, we're going to go, we, we, can, we can return to normalcy. We can go back to this period before all this turmoil. Okay, so very make America great again. Yes, there's echoes of that in that. And you actually even the same slogan, uh, America first. Um, That's very much the case. The other thing I think, and I don't, we've yet to see how this plays out with President Trump, but just the role of women in politics. Right. Like like Harding comes in, and that's the beginning of a a decade of Republican rule. It's the, 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 We'll see if the 2016 election, we don't know if that's, this is now like a, we're in a period of align, realignment. I suspect we are, but we don't know this yet, where you're going to have this shifting political parties. Um, but it's also going to be interesting to see how gender and women's issues play out this going forward in politics, because um, they were certainly talked about a lot in the 20s. Um, I think the thing about Harding's personal life is it came out after he was dead. Right. It, it didn't play out while he was in the White House. 
So I don't know how that will, will come into play. Yeah. Do you think there's anything to be learned from Harding's presidency, like for us today? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I think on a positive side, like Harding, like I said, he's got a terrible reputation. Mm-hmm. There's some good to Harding. Um, one, Harding viewed himself as a harmonizer, and that was his word. And a lot of what he did is he just tried to calm things down. Like, and he doesn't, and that's a hard thing for as a president to say, like, here's a concrete accomplishment. But a lot of what he does is he tries to, to smooth over divisions in the country, like kind of bring people together. And he had a fair amount of success with that. If you think about 1919, it's this year of incredible turmoil in the United States. And then by 1922, prosperity is starting to come and, and people are sort of settling into the 20s, which still has a tension that they don't go away. But, but he does, to a large extent, um, he goes a long ways on that. And he takes a lot of symbolic acts, like he, he pardons Eugene Debs, who is the socialist labor leader, um, and Debs, Debs was in prison for having protested World War One, uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts, the Sedition Acts, and Harding pardons him, saying he shouldn't be in prison for his political views. Um, Harding goes to Birmingham, Alabama, and gives a speech uh, opposed to Jim Crow, opposed to segregation, and saying black black people should be able to vote. Um, so he does. He gets some credit for that, and it's also, I think, another lesson. If you want to, one way to think of it, if you want to think about presidents who don't succeed, is that Harding never really rose completely to being president. Like he didn't understand the administration of it, and he did bring people in and trusted them, and they did get the scandals. Like right. his Secretary of the Interior Albert Ball took bribes. His Attorney General Harry Doherty was involved in shadiness. I mean, he the jury acquits him, but like by one vote. Like, there's definitely a Justice Department has some, some funkiness in it. Um, and so there, there is that, that that element too, where Harding needed to, as Harding himself said, it's not his enemies that kept him awake at night. It was his da- it was his damn friends that kept him awake. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much. That was. Um, a very interesting look at President Day and the presidency. So thank you for that. Okay. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, we hope to see you next week or listen to you, have you listen to us next week on the show. Thanks. Bye.